Hey everybody, welcome to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I hope everyone is having an absolutely fantastic day. I hope you're full of energy, slept like a champion last night, and you're attacking your goals in life every single day. I'm having a great day. I'm actually in the process of designing all the camp material for Australia, New Zealand, and Dubai, and I look forward to seeing each and every one of you there. If you're able to make it, this is going to be all brand new material, and I'm super pumped about it. Today's guest is actually going to be filling us in on one of the topics I'm going to be talking about in the camps, and that's sleep. Sleep for a long time was something that I neglected. I think a lot of young, uh, motivated individuals tend to neglect sleep and wear it as a badge of honor as though it doesn't matter and I'll sleep when I'm dead. It was definitely a mentality that I took on for the better part of 10 years. I overcame it with pre-workout stimulants. I overcame it with coffee and I overcame it with just sheer will many times and I will advise you that that is not the best way to approach life. That is not the best way to approach performance because at 37 years old, I had telomeres that were the length of a 51-year-old person, which means telomeres, for those of you that don't know, are the little ends of your DNA strands that indicate how long your life is. The shorter the telomere, the less amount of time you have remaining in your life. So interestingly enough, uh, after re-implementing some sleep strategies, my telomeres are now back to the level of what they're supposed to be and actually looks like they're trending to be younger than my current age of 38 years old. And all I did was change sleep. And I went from sleeping five hours a night to between seven and eight every night. And not only is it long sleep, it's also high quality sleep. In this episode, we're going to discuss all of the levers that you should be considering that optimize sleep. Tara Youngblood joins me today to talk about all of the things that impact our sleep. So from what has the greatest impact on our circadian rhythms to the things that we're not paying attention to in our environment that we should be, that's definitely impeding our ability to get you know a good two hours of deep sleep. So I hope you guys enjoy my podcast with Tara Youngblood. She's an absolute wealth of information. Very, very bright lady. I'm super grateful to have had her on the show. I hope you enjoy this podcast. If you do, share with at least one person you know and love because we all know somebody who's slacking or lagging in their sleep. Today's podcast is brought to you by Fresh Press Olive Oil. Guys, this is your last opportunity to get your bottle for a dollar. Um, Fresh Press only ships out three times a year. And once it's gone, it's gone. You're going to have to wait for the next shipment. So I highly suggest you get over to Get Fresh 3.5. Get Fresh 3.5. And that website alone, there's no code and like that. Just go to that website and you can get your first bottle of olive oil, full-size bottle for a dollar. And I promise you, you will not be disappointed in this olive oil. It's by far the best olive oil I've ever tried. And I know it sounds a little far-fetched to get excited about olive oil, but I really, really do because it's so much better. And it literally goes on every meal that I have now. I think I eat so that I can have olive oil. Anyways, guys, without further rambling for me, I hope you enjoy this podcast about sleep, how to optimize it, and why it matters with Terry Youngblood. everybody. So we're diving into sleep today and I have a sleep expert, Tara Youngblood, joining me today who's getting ready to do a TED Talk on sleep. Tara, how are you? Great. How are you? I'm wonderful. I enjoyed a great sleep last night in my condo here in Toronto, Canada. It was dark, it was cold, and I enjoyed every minute of it. Great. I'm so glad to hear about that. 
Yeah. And I know for a long time, or I, I'll tell you for a long time that I slept probably five hours a night. As a professional bodybuilder, I had a really hard time getting sleep. And I know now that coaching you know, hundreds of people around the world, that sleep seems to be maybe the number one biggest complaint. And most people obviously have high levels of stress or aren't aware of how to optimize their lifestyle and environment. So I wanted to bring you on to just dive right into everything that goes into optimizing or perhaps creating the perfect sleep. Awesome. I can't wait. I, the bodybuilders out there, that sort of high metabolism scenario, really, I like to think about it as your engines are just built bigger, your race car engines and your body temperature and metabolism are all like that. So it's definitely not the regular sleep story that would be for perhaps just an average Joe, but it is definitely important to get enough sleep no matter who you are. Yeah. And anecdotally, you know, I noticed the leaner I get, the more I have a hard time with temperature while I sleep, which is ironic because most people think, well, you have less body fat, it'll actually be colder for you. But in reality, I find maybe it's because there's more brown fat that my, or maybe my metabolism is going faster. The leaner I get, the less I tend to sleep. Is that something you found? Absolutely. So I've done a lot of deep dives into metabolism, especially metabolism at night. And it's really interesting because you'll take a, a relatively even just small female CrossFit person, high metabolism, very lean, and even they will have a high uh, temperature profile at night. And it really has to do with that engine. So when you're revving the engine when it's hot, it really needs to be cooled down. And so the metabolism that you're creating to build that lean muscle fat is absolutely trying to put off heat. It's really just like your engine in your car. The more sort of horsepower, the more time you have in those kind of environments, the more cooling those cars need. They can't do the same cooling as a little Prius. Very, very cool. So first thing I want to dive into with you is, you know, most people that come into my world are in some way overstressed. And I think stress is one factor that I'd love to talk about and how exactly that is impacting sleep. Because it seems as though our world that we live in today is just riddled with stress. And unless people become massively aware of it, it's probably not going away. You know, we live in a, an environment that's high paced. There's a lot of cell phones. There's a lot of cars. There's a lot of blue light, things that are sympathetically driven. Any thoughts and interventions that you implement or suggest people implementing in the realm of stress? Yeah. So stress, I absolutely agree, is really critical part of your whole life, but in particular for sleep. So when you go to sleep, your body is really geared towards recovery. So your memories recover, your body recovers. It wants to be in recovery state. And so what it wants to do is it doesn't want to be stressed out. All the hormones that are in that side of the lymphatic system are all not helpful for recovery. So the sleep space in particular, when you go in to go to sleep, it's really important to divest yourself of the stress. So I think, you know, it's obviously great if you can lose stress throughout the day and try to have practices where you're taking a minute and do breathing or, or those sort of things. But certainly in that last half hour before we go to sleep to really take that time, you know, it really depends on the person, whether that's meditation, some people will pray, some people will do journaling or gratitude. You know, everybody has a personal preference for what that sort of quiet introspection time will be. But to basically Think about what's going to keep you up at night. What's going to keep your mind still going? Write it down. Get it out of your head. Be peaceful. Change your breathing. All of those sort of things. That last half hour before you go to bed is absolutely critical to be de-stressed. 
I think a lot of people don't acknowledge the reality that your home and in particular your bedroom should be like a sanctuary, right? You should walk into this and feel like you're going home to a Zen palace. And I think a lot of people just throw a mattress on the floor or they throw a bed in the room and don't really pay attention to you know, the energy, the feeling in the room that as soon as you walk in, is it a feeling of angst or uh, stress or is it a feeling of serenity? And, uh, you know, talking about that sleep environment a little bit is, I think, imperative so people can start creating that anchor in that environment. So this, hey, this is what I do in this place. I come here to rest. I come here to recover. I come here to recharge. Uh, I think that's an important perspective to give people. Oh, absolutely. It's the only room in the house that's named after a piece of furniture. So it's not a living space. It's not where you cook. (laughs) It is not, it should really be a sleep room. You know, I fell into that trap I've had, you know, where I've had my workout equipment based on tight space in my bedroom. And, you know, then you're like, there's all those little cues of like, well, should I be, did I do enough today? All those little questions come up so that really need to visualize that space truly as your sleep temple. You know, we do a lot of work with intention. I really feel like what the intention is, as you mentioned, going into that space is really important. And it's really important to keep it sacred and set for that de-stress, that healing. When you go into a spa for a massage, it's they don't have TVs and all sorts of craziness going on. It's It's peaceful music. It's dim lighting. It's set to get you to relax so that even before you actually do the massage, you're breathing in the right fumes and the aromatics and you're you're hearing the right sounds and you're having the right light. It's really important to sort of think about that same thing for sleep. Yeah, very cool. I know a lot of people have heard the conversation around turning your bedroom into a cave that's cold and dark and lacks everything electrical. And that's really the way I think about it is like when I walk into this, I almost want it to feel like I'm walking into a spa. Like I want to feel like it's like you put, you're letting everything down just and just everything's falling off your shoulders. And it's like, ah, I get to relax. And, and if you can create that environment, especially in your home, obviously if you're on the road, it's impossible, but create that in your home, I think that would create the best case scenario for someone to start leaving those stresses behind. Yeah. So I spent a lot of time with BJ Fogg, who's a behavioral specialist from Stanford. He's got a great book coming yeah. out on tiny habits. And I, I really feel like sleep is definitely all about habits. And I think that as you travel, a lot of professional athletes travel. And one of the tricks to still get good sleep is to create those habits of intention and do the same thing and try to be able to do those same things even when you're on the road. So you may be in a hotel room, but make it dark and dim the lights and take the same time to journal or meditate or whatever you're going to do for that last half hour. Try to keep those habits because your body is on a clock. It's on a circadian rhythm. It wants that methodical habit-based approach to sleep. So Tara, what are the primary physiological factors impacting sleep? So if you want to walk through kind of all the systems that we should be paying attention to, for someone looking to optimize sleep. So is, you know, is it the visual system with light? Is it the you know, autonomic nervous system with, with stress? Like how should we be looking at sleep optimization maybe from a systems approach? Yeah, so I like to start with sort of the evolutionary approach. So in the oldest part of your brain, which is the hypothalamus and it's oldest just from the perspective of evolution, that's where a lot of your sleep centers are. And that's also where your chronotype or circadian rhythm, now chronotype, it 
all of us have a little bit of a different rhythm to that circadian clock. That's where the night owl or morning person comes from. And it's important to kind of, there's lots of quizzes online to take that'll give you kind of a perspective on what that timing is. That's really what drives us. It drives all of those factors of sleep and it is governed by light and temperature, as you mentioned. So it's important to give that sort of respect. When you do that, it's magical for those workouts, for cognitive load. It can help you decide when you do stuff throughout the day, when you should eat, if you're doing fasting or if you're doing heavy protein. There's all sorts of information about sort of timing your day, especially for performance-driven people based on chronotype. So that's sort of the first place I think to start. Yeah. We've had expert Greg Potter on the podcast in the past. And, oh, uh, great. Yeah, he's a whiz when it comes to this stuff. But I'd still like to dive into that a little bit before you kind of go on to the other systems because, you know, maybe someone hasn't had a chance to listen to Greg or I just like to hear your perspective on how much of a difference does that actually make? Like, is there, you know, a multi-hour swing from someone who might be a morning person to someone who's more of a night person? Or is it just a, a small uh, variance person to person? So I'll sort of handle it from the approach of sleep. So your core body temperature actually fluctuates about two degrees throughout the day. And the coldest part of that or the lowest part of that valley happens in the middle of the night. And so when you time your sleep around that, and we'll get into deep sleep later, but it really makes a phenomenal difference on the temperature. Now, there's also Clifford Sapier out of Harvard was one of the first people to coin the term sleep switch. And actually, there is a sleep switch. There are neurons in your brain that are triggered by temperature. They signal the release of melatonin and start that. So, you know, when you look at how that system works, so if you have a temperature cue, a change in temperature, change in light can also be, it's a backup system for triggering that sleep. So if you trigger that in the right window based on your clock, when your body's looking for that trigger to be turned on, then you get a much better sleep. What happens for, from a sleep perspective is then you immediately go into deep sleep. It really does stay very succinct where it's very deep sleep heavy in the first part of the night. It's looking to be colder. When you match that, the effects are amazing for sleep. We get what we like to call sleep density improvement. So that is a quality factor, but you're able to get much denser sleep. So even if you get a shorter sleep, you're still able to get that same quality. But a lot of that is triggered on being in the right window at the right temperature. And you're able to sort of, it's an absolute hack to be able to change that. Now for performance is the same way. If you're a morning person and you work out in the afternoon, and if you intrinsically know that about yourself, you're going to sort of register that. Yeah, that makes sense. So for me, I'm a super morning person, but I have boys. So sometimes I'll go to work out with them in the afternoon and I'm like, I can't get the same groove on. It just doesn't feel the same. Did I physically go through the workout? Absolutely. Were all my metrics the same? No. Did I feel the same? No. So it's not like a, you know, wide swing of maybe 50% difference, but it's in that feel and in the overall performance and what you feel like on the other side. So you mentioned in there that temperature may actually be a bigger influence on circadian rhythm than light. Is that the case? It is for sleep. So they oh. all factor in. But again, that's not solely my opinion. That's Clifford Sapier out of Harvard has spent time on that. He discovered it by looking for a pharmaceutical cue for sleep, ironically, but then spent more time diving further into what that is. And those VLPO neurons are actually triggered by temperature. Gary Siegel of 
UCLA also did a hunter-gatherer research on sleep and found the same thing, that temperature was the major cue for them. Super interesting. Now, so how does that implicate into people manipulating temperature before bed? So I hear a lot of people doing, you know, cold showers or cold plunges or versus saunas before bed. I've heard of that as well. Obviously, exercise would be something you'd probably want to avoid as far as increasing your core body temperature. But any thoughts on cold exposure or sun exposure before bed and how that's going to implicate? So those are all fabulous ways to hack that system and get that sleep switch to flip. So the reason it gets flipped is there's a change in temperature and it's significant enough to cause an even 0.1 degree difference in that core body temperatures. It has to be something that would register into your core body. So that's why all of those extreme measures, some people find even putting socks on is enough. But if you have a high metabolism, that your body will respond like it's so efficient, it's not going to register a small change. But depending on where you are in that scope, an extreme change is absolutely going to flip that switch. Now, timing it definitely makes that better. So that's where, you know, it, whether if you're going to sleep two hours later than you should and you do an ice bath, will it still help you fall asleep? Absolutely. But it will work better if you do it a little bit earlier. So it's just a change in temperature? It doesn't matter if it's in either direction? No, it doesn't. You know, some of it's personal preference because, again, sleep is very habit-based. But it is. Our current environment is pretty much constant. So we set our heat, our air conditioner, to around the same temperature all year round. And then we live in that. And then we go in our car or in our bus or some other managed space to our office. And that's in a managed space. We're not spending as much time outside where there's a natural temperature flux. So another thing is if it's a different temperature outside, go for a walk before you go to bed. And it doesn't really change your metabolism that much. Like you said, don't want to work out before you go to bed because that's changing your metabolism and not just your temperature. You want to just focus on that temperature because you don't want to sort of excite your body or release cortisone at that time. You kind of avoid anything that would resist that. And that's where reducing stress also helps and just changing that temperature without stress. So does temperature directly implicate in all stages of sleep terror or is it mostly to do with deep sleep or REM sleep or is it just overall going to impact everything? So it definitely has an impact on REM sleep. There's been a, numerous studies on that. Now, again, if you go back to that sort of temperature profile of what's happening in your body, if you follow that circadian rhythm, your lowest point, depending on when you go to sleep and what that chronotype is, is between two and four for most people. Sometime that is the lowest part of your valley of your core body temperature. So if you can imagine deep sleep, Sleep wants to be cooler because your body's trying to drop those two degrees to optimize your temperature for deep sleep. And REM sleep really is very focused on the second half of the night. And of course, as your body is coming out of that temperature valley, it wants to have a little bit warmer. So we do advise, you know, when we talk about temperature is that you really want to be a little bit warmer. It's hard when you're sleeping, so there's not a lot of easy hacks to do that. But definitely if you have a programmable thermostat, if you have the chili pad, if you have Uller, some of those are ways to sort of hack that and make that a little bit warmer in the morning. And your body will naturally alter its sleep stages to match that temperature. Very, very interesting. I didn't know that. That's a great little hack. So one of the biggest questions or concerns I get from clients and listeners is the inability to access appropriate amounts of deep sleep. Um, you know, separate from temperature, which we've obviously just discussed, are there any suggestions you have for people looking to optimize 
their amount of deep sleep. Yeah, so this is the buzzkill moment. Deep sleep really wants you to not have alcohol in your system. It is <laughs> sort of sad, but yeah, alcohol is a big factor when you last. I found a hack for that, Tara. I think we just need to start drinking in the morning exactly. instead of in the evening. Party all day, be done at six o'clock, <laughs> and then it won't affect your sleep. Right, it's like college all over again. Exactly. See, they, they had it. They had it right. But yes, unfortunately, things like alcohol, anything that changes your metabolism and sort of alters that state of relaxed or stress, stresses out your organs, is going to affect your deep sleep because it really wants to be recovery. So I use a tracker that has resting heart rate and HRV, and you really want to focus on those numbers. So if you're Besides temperature, you really want to be tracking those sort of parameters so you can say, oh, am I truly recovering from stress? If you're looking at performance, you should be able to look at your HRV. It's a great scope. It'll actually tell you a few days before you're about to get sick as an indicator. If you watch it, track it sort of consistently, you'll be able to see those kind of changes like, oh, wow, it's trending down. It's going to trend down. It's going to trend down because, you know, HRV, when you look at those numbers, the lower numbers are all higher stress numbers, which makes sense because it's the variability between your heartbeats and if you think about it, when you're highly stressed, you're kind of screwed down. You're going to be more in control of those beats and there's not going to be a lot of variability. Well, when you're relaxed, you know, all of us are like, oh, we're, we're drunk or whatever. We're, we're relaxed and those heartbeats respond to that and there's much more variation on that. And the bigger the variation, the more relaxed you are. And alcohol doesn't, as much as it allows us to relax our mental state, it doesn't help our bodies to relax and get in that recovery space for stress. Have you dug into any hacks before bed to improve sleep? So I particularly see this in my clients as they start to age, that deep sleep starts to, to kind of deteriorate. Yeah. So deep sleep is definitely something absolutely diminishes with age. At the age of 20, you should get two hours and an eight-hour span of deep sleep. And by the time you're 80, you'll have different disease parameters, can obviously make that happen sooner. Genotypes will make that possibly happen sooner. Lots of sleep deprivation will make that happen sooner. But it is definitely something that's hard to chase as you get older. Sleep overall quality and consistency and total amount all diminish with age. So much fun getting old. But some of the hacks are, you know, some of them are really simple. Most people in the U.S. are low on magnesium and potassium. If we work out a lot, we're chronically in that state. So it's pretty easy to be low and you don't think you are. So, you know, and it's good. It feels good. It's calming. It's a great, simple way. So for me, I definitely do magnesium. I'll do it in a, a drink or I'll put magnesium oil on my feet. You know, there's some sleepy time teas that honestly, they really work. Part of it is, I think it's that warm change of temperature again, and it's relaxing. There's some really good ones. Like I said, sleepy time is one of the better ones I think out there, but whatever you can get near you to just create those habits and anchor them to your sleep. And I think that the biggest thing that I've realized for my sleep, and I'm a chronic insomniac, so I chase it. If I think too hard, I swear I stay up. So I constantly have to manage that space. And so think about your bedtime. I like to think in sleep as three buckets of messiness because I'm a farm girl and messy stuff goes in buckets and it is messy and it's going to be different for everyone. What may work for you may not work for your sleep partner or spouse, 
And so it's really easy to say, well, this works for me. It should work for everybody. You know, manage it by chronotype and personality type. What feels good? Because all of those memories, that's where weighted blankets come in. Go back to when we were little. You know, there's a lot of emotional baggage around sleep and it, it can be magical. But, it, you know, if it wasn't being successful for you, it can also carry a lot of, of that. I don't know. I'm not good at it. I put it off. I'm going to watch one more Netflix show. You know, all of those things. And so we sabotage that first bucket it pretty heavily. And then, you know, our environment sabotage that second bucket of deep sleep by making it consistent. We're in man-made material, mattresses, underneath covers, and our body temperature of 37 degrees Celsius or 98 degrees Fahrenheit is putting off this heat. And the higher your metabolism, the more heat you're going to put off. And it's basically, you're creating a little oven for yourself in the middle of the night. We tend to sabotage that second bucket that way. And then the third bucket, you know, is REM sleep. And REM sleep is really sort of an emotionally charged sleep. We need it to feel good in the morning, to feel like we've recovered from our emotions. And so what happens is if we're up in the middle of the night, we'll say, I'll just get up. And then we don't respect that second half of the night for what it can contribute as well. Now, something you said just a minute ago was by the time we're 80, we have no deep sleep. And that's fascinating to me. And you know, my brain goes to, okay, well, let's, how do we not make that happen? So has anyone quantified why that's happening? Is it, you know, neurochemical? Is it neuroelectrical? Like, what are the reasons, if you know? Yeah, so I'm definitely temperature biased, because that is one of the ways I found that can hack it. But it's really interesting as well, if you track what happens in the metabolism of sort of those geriatric 65 and above people, their thermostat is basically gets broken. There's times where they'll be on heating pads because they feel cold and they burn themselves because they don't have a good sense on how hot is too hot. You know, it makes sense that when we aren't feeling well, we run a temperature. Our temperature thermostat for menopause, hormones, all those kind of things, throw it off. So as we get older, it's just a very vulnerable system, temperature is. So temperature is a really big factor in that equation. I think some of it is also they get frustrated with sleep. They need you know, more sleep and they'll not time it very well or they'll sort of not practice good habits is also something I've worked with different people on. Have you seen anything around, there's two things that come to mind, you know, deterioration of GABA being mm -hmm. one and potentially the calcification of the pineal gland deteriorating melatonin being the other. Have you seen anything in that realm? Yeah. You know, there's so many factors of the studies on sleep and aging, I think are only starting to get to a real sophisticated level. The one thing about sleep that is continually frustrating is that it's a really relatively new science. I mean, they've been sort of studying it since the 70s, but really it's in the last 20 years that there's been a lot of studying on, on sleep. So that's where you're starting to see it. deep sleep in particular is being tied to Alzheimer's and cognitive loss. I've spent a, a bunch of time at different universities talking to people on this subject on all those sort of deteriorations. Our body is a complex network. It's really hard to point the finger to one particular, like that's why we age, that's what's going wrong. This is the one problem in our society. We want to have that quick fix and say, well, if I just fix this, I'm good. But we're pretty complex beings and what works for one genotype 
may not work for another. So it is, there's definitely certain parameters of people that calcification is a big part of it. But then there's other people that aren't registering that at all. And I don't think they've come to a good conclusion on how to break us up into almost tribes of these people need to you know, interact with it this way. And these people might be better off to interact with it that way. I think at some point, I hope our health will get to that more individualized look instead of this blanket. This is, this is what's wrong with all of us. How important is food in helping people to reset circadian rhythms or at least establish circadian rhythms? Because I know a lot of people in the fitness space, especially tend to eat very close to bed. And maybe it's this huge trend right now to not eat in the morning which we know is going to in many ways implicate into your circadian rhythms. Any thoughts on that? So I think there is definitely a tie-in of what you eat and when you eat. I think that, again, there's a lot of other mechanisms that are more important. So I'm a big advocate of intermittent fasting. So there's definitely days where I eat a very small eating window and it does amp up your metabolism and that effect can affect your sleep and what you eat in that window can affect your sleep. But I also feel like that burst of fasting has huge amounts of effect on all sorts of other systems. So it's important. So if you're not going to use breakfast as breakfast first thing in the morning, you do need to know that what you're going to do to start your day because your body, like we talked about, that temperature is coming out of the valley. All of those, when that happens, all those cortisol morning moments are being decided if your body's going to release them like, hey, is it really morning? Do I need to really get up? And especially as we get into the darker days where when we're getting up, it's not light out. So we can't trust being able to go outside and get some fresh light for that. So, you know, if you're going to do fasting, definitely exercise, do something to raise that first thing in the morning, drink lots of water still first in the morning. So you start your metabolism. So I think that there's ways to respect you know, that timing and still that circadian rhythm, but not really let it change your diet too much. Awesome. Tara, you said you have a TED Talk coming up. What are the primary talking points for you at the TED Talk? So it is about three buckets of sleep and owning your sleep. So in full disclosure, I really was a horrible sleeper. And in 2008, we lost one of our sons. So as you can imagine, oh, wow. that going through that grief and the depression in conjunction with insomnia was basically this tsunami for me for sleep and health. And, wow, and so as great as temperature is, and it, it works great for millions of people, it's a great hack, absolutely. But it wasn't everything I needed to do to fix my sleep. And that's where the idea of the buckets really came from, of coming up with a plan, figuring out what else I can do to create consistent sleep. For a lot of people, sleep has become this thing that they've just accepted their poor sleepers. They may even be type A, very high performing individuals, but yet they've decided that they have a sleep issue and they don't know how to tackle it because they don't have a succinct plan. We make plans for workouts. We make plans for diets. We really need to get to a spot where we are making plans for our sleep, where we're owning what happens in those three buckets of sleep and what happens during our day so we can get great sleep because it is, it's an exponential effect on everything in your life. Very cool. And the one final thing that I kind of wanted to just gloss over was you brought up melatonin a little bit and I know that 
becomes a huge issue when we're exposed to huge amounts of light at night. Is that something you suggest people supplement with? And are you someone who's an advocate of blue light blocking glasses? Or are you doing anything to, to dim your lights or paying attention to your environments you know, for a few hours leading into bedtime? I do. I think that like all of those environmental changes, EMFs as a physics background are also a big part of those lights. Those sort of influences can make a big difference. There's people that are going to be more sensitive to those than others. I have to have a dark room. I need to have that space really protected because I have a much more vulnerable sleep state. Todd, my business partner and husband, he has traveled all over the place. He doesn't really get jet lag per se. He's a great sleeper. So those that don't affect him as much, he can even drink caffeine right before he goes to bed, the turkey. But that's his genotype. That's who he is as a body. So, you know, If you are sensitive to light, if you know that when you go to sleep, that if there's a little crack of light under the door, it's going to keep you up, then probably the blue light is affecting you and you should consider the glasses. If it's not something that light is going to be one of your key factors, figure out what is the key factor for you. For a lot of high metabolism people, that is temperature. So Todd loves to sleep on, he'd sleep on a slab of ice if he could. He likes to have it super cold, especially for that second bucket of sleep. I don't need it quite as cold. It's, you know, part of our trade-offs. Very, very interesting, Tara. I think this is absolutely fantastic. It's so many great takeaways. Are there any supplements beside magnesium that you're leaning on? Um, I know you mentioned magnesium in sleep attempts, but, you know, in a pinch, is there anything? Are you going after anything that's going to be a GABA precursor or anything for melatonin or anything else that you think may be a useful addition? That's right. I'm sorry. I didn't answer your question about melatonin. So melatonin, because it's a hormone that can be released naturally and it can be triggered with temperature, my bias on melatonin is to use it to get over the hump on a sleep issue. And I think a lot of supplements can really change what you're doing, but I'm a big believer in test and retest because vitamin D is a good example for me. Certainly in that tsunami, my vitamin D levels, you know, I was a mess all over the board. I went and did Everly Well has got uh, some great tests now, but I had a partner that was able to do all sorts of tests and kind of really figure out what was missing. As far as supplements go, I always hate to say, yes, do this because we're all so different. And the biggest thing about it's sort of almost a pet peeve of someone says, oh yeah, you got to take it. This is the end all be all is test, make sure it's right for you. You know, melatonin is given to kids, for example, like crazy right now and those wonderful melatonin gummies, but we haven't, there's no studies that show the long-term impacts of basically you're doing a hormone replacement therapy where you're expecting that you're not getting enough melatonin. So you're going to use that supplement to replace it. And whenever we do that without in a blanket kind of way, it scares me a little bit because down the road, we may discover that we've really, all these kids and their development, we've supplemented their melatonin for so long, they may not produce it the same naturally. So I think I'm pretty careful on supplements and I usually cycle them through in a monthly basis of, do I still need this? Why am I still taking it? Do I need to try something else? Because I've tested this, this works and I've moved past that and I need to look at what I'm going to work on next and sort of on a month by month basis, journal your health, journal your sleep, find out what's looking 
good, what's improving it, take out the things that aren't and replace those. Because we all have a tolerance. We're not going to take a hundred different pills or supplements or additives. We have to figure out what, be intentional with what we're adding into our body based on what we're missing. That's amazing. It's almost like somebody should create a resource where I can go on a website, type in my symptoms and it goes, hey, like try this, right? Because you know, the way I do my supplements across the board, whether it be for sleep or anything, it's like, well, how am I feeling? Am I feeling tired? Am I feeling energetic? Am I feeling anxious? Am I feeling whatever? And then I'll usually adjust my supplements like that. There's a certain number of things that I have that are foundational, like you said, you know, your B vitamins, your magnesium, maybe your collagen, things like this, but things that are kind of situationally specific. If I know I'm anxious, if I know I'm whatever, lethargic, just picking and choosing based on symptoms. But I know not everyone has that kind of skill set to be able to differentiate um, how they feel. Yeah, that's definitely, I think, a need out there. It is important to create a health journal, I think. And whoever you are in that, that's part of your dumping out what's in your head at the night. But when you look at the professional athletes, they have someone following around, basically doing that for them. The Olympic athletes that we've worked with, and even the high performing, we have a bunch of special forces, you know, someone is tracking them as an asset to say, okay, this is what's going on here. We're going to change this out. We're going to try this. And it is much heavy lifting, more heavy lifting for us individuals that don't have someone that follows around and tells us what to do. But I do think a journal of some kind where you are keeping it track of it, because we all have days where we're more fatigued or we got in a fight or we had a bad day at the office or it was a bad commute home. And those all affect those subjective values that we're going to put in. So definitely track stuff over time. And sleep is something that really changes over the course of seasonality, over the course of the week, over the course of the month. There's very few studies done on women because of our menopausal cycles. It makes me crazy for sleep. So, you know, tracking that, keeping track of it for yourself is really important because all of those are variations. Yeah, absolutely. And and just something like an aura ring is a great way to track sleep. I mean, you're seeing your stages of sleep, your HRV, and I usually use that as kind of an indication. Like if I know my HRV is in the toilet, likelihood my sleep will be poor as well. So then maybe I need a little bit of assistance to help me you know, calm down or get to sleep and stay asleep. So, um, you know, I think that the listeners have heard me talk about the aura ring a thousand times, but great asset with relatively accurate sleep tracking. Obviously, it's not going to be good as going and get a polysomnograph or something like that, but uh, still very useful. Is that what you used to track? Yeah, we literally for a while, because we had so many trackers that I was testing out, we put our bed up on blocks so that it wouldn't create chaos. They could all kind of live underneath as I was going through and testing things. And I absolutely believe in the aura ring. And I think actually it isn't as accurate according to academics as a polysomnograph. But if you Google a picture of what someone getting a polysomnograph looks like, anyone like me that's a fairly sensitive sleep environment person, you're hooked up to all of these different wires coming off of you. You have to lay on your back in a lab with someone staring at you you know, basically yeah. <laughs> tracking and they're literally going to watch live as your brain waves change. And that's how they tell what sleep state you're in. Yes, that may be the most accurate way to tell. However, once I'm in that environment, I'm not sleeping like I normally do. So you lose that part of the efficacy of this is my regular life. This is what happened on Friday night when I partied. And this is what happened on, you know, Wednesday when I had a bad day at work. So having that like evidence live in person in your phone every day, I think is an invaluable way to add tracking to sleep 
for sure. Yeah. And you don't even notice you're wearing it most of the time, right? It's just kind of there and you remember to charge it every two or three days. It's a really simple way. And because it gives HRV as well and resting respiration rate, I think it's such a useful tool that people should be investing in and, and relatively inexpensive. So Tara, thank you so much for your wisdom and your time. I'm so, so grateful. And I look forward to tuning into your TED Talk and I'll make sure I post that within the show notes. If it's coming up soon, we'll make sure it gets included in there and we'll be following along on social media as you do your amazing things uh, throughout this journey. Great. And for being on the show today, I do have a coupon for your listeners if they decide they want to try out a chili pad or an Uller and it's muscle sleep. Oh, wonderful. Thank you so much, Tara. We do appreciate it. I'm sure a lot of people want to check it out. Great. Have a great day. All right. That's a wrap, ladies and gents. Just before you go, thank you so much for your time. I hope you're having an absolutely fantastic day. I hope you enjoyed that podcast. I hope it was very informative. And as always, I appreciate you guys being here so, so much. I know there's a lot of places where you can get information. I know there's a lot of great podcasts out there, but nobody is delivering the amazing information and the amazing mission that we are here at Muscle Intelligence. Ashley and I are so grateful for your ear, so grateful for your time. And we will continue to deliver the absolute best information, the best podcast guests that we can find anywhere in the world and curating all this information around the six pillars of a lean, healthy, and muscular physique. So if you don't know what the six pillars are, here they are. They're obviously training. And training is a big part of how your body looks and feels both now and long-term mindset. Creating a goal achiever's mindset is how I looked at look at this. What does a successful person do differently than somebody else? That's how we frame mindset. Sleep. Sleep is a big pillar that people neglect. Nutrition is obviously up there as a very, very big pillar. We also look at your environment. How is your environment impacting your internal state? And the final one that we look at that's huge is stress. And we measure stress through heart rate variability. You guys know I've dove into heart rate variability a lot. And that's just how I create this framework. And you have to consider all of these six things if you're looking to optimize your body. And I hope every one of you is. Um, there's only a certain number of things you can impact, right? It's how you breathe, how you move, how you think, how you sleep, how you eat, and the environment in which you do all those. Those are your six pillars. Literally, that's it. Breathe, move, think, sleep, eat, and the environment in which you do it all. Those are things we can impact. So take control of your life, take control of your body and mind, and have an amazing day and leave us a review on iTunes or head over to YouTube and muscleintelligence.com if you want to check it out. Have an amazing day, guys. I appreciate you very much. Live your greatest life in a body that you absolutely love. Thank you so much for tuning into Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Pikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.